Well, this morning I want to talk to you about some of the key events uh, surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. In particular, I want to look, present an exegetical and theological argument for the view that the church, the new covenant people of God, will be raptured, and I'll be defining that term in a second. I want to argue exegetically and theologically that the church will be raptured at the time of Christ's return in glory after the final tribulation. This is what's called post a post-tribulational understanding of the rapture, or post-trib for short. The other viewpoint is pre-tribulational, or pre-trib for short. And I realize everything I just said there may be 100% new to you. It's like, where, where are we hearing this kind of stuff? You know, or, or um, like you may never have heard this before, just, just hold on, I'm going to explain it. Or it could be that you're from a church environment in your last church where this is all you ever talked about. So hold on. (laughs) The pre-tribulational perspective, and that's the view that I believe is incorrect, is very common, especially in the American church. Uh, We're going to look at its history in just a moment. But if someone is pre-trib, and this is linked, this is probably linked with an eschatological school of thought that you've heard of before called dispensationalism. Have you heard of that? Uh, Then that person believes, among other things, that the coming of Jesus will take place in two separate stages. The first will be what's been called a secret rapture or a carrying away of the saved Christians to heaven at the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation during which the Antichrist will appear. The second phase of Christ's return occurs at the close of that tribulation and Jesus returns to earth in triumph and glory. That return of Jesus, it is argued, won't be secret. Every eye will see him. And there are many, many Christians, millions of Christians, people like John MacArthur, for instance, uh, who, contrary to me, believe in a pre-tribulational secret rapture. Uh, a carrying away of the saved Christians to heaven at the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation during which the Antichrist will appear. Now, I don't agree with that viewpoint theologically, but it's not a point of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, there's room for debate on issues like this in the church. And, and you're hearing stuff in that where you're hearing Antichrist, return of Christ. There's, th- there's things in there that I would believe in, you know, but not the way that it's being framed there. Uh, one of the best-selling book series of all time, the Left Behind series, 80 million copies sold. I mean, that's a lot. Harry Potter worldwide has sold 500 million. Okay, Harry Potter, this has sold 80 million. That's pretty respectable. Um, it's pre-tribulational through and through. It's dispensational through and through. That's the whole point of the book's title, right? The church is raptured off the earth. They are carried away to, to heaven. And then those left behind, they face the final tribulation and the rage of the Antichrist. I can't remember his name, like Victor Carpathian or something. I can't remember the name. But, um, and those left behind may later believe the gospel and be saved in the midst of the final tribulation, but they still have to go through the final tribulation. And again, I believe in a final tribulation, just not how it's being framed here through dispensational lenses. Uh, And there have been members at New City who were convinced of this viewpoint. I don't think there are any members at New City now who believe that. Are are you aware of any who do believe that? I mean, I'm not trying to call you out here. I'm just like, it's fine if you do. I just, I don't think we have any members who are dispensational as far as I know. Um, uh, whereas other members of New City, they hold to a different view, or they have no idea what they think, or that they even have options to choose from. 
He's like, John, I'm an empty vessel. Just fill me full of knowledge from the Bible. It's like, great. I'm glad you're here. And let me say, it's not my intention this morning to present a full-orbed eschatology with a well-laid-out defense of my position while critiquing opposing views. I really just want to examine a couple of points with you today before getting down to some exegesis of texts in the week to come. It all comes down to exegesis, right? So next lesson is lesson number four, Lord willing. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I want you to turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Just give you a heads up. If any member at New City were to die, which is I mean, it's going to happen, but it, you know, it, then this is going to be the first funeral sermon that everybody else hears. This will be your sermon if you die at New City, okay? For, if you're the first one to die. This, this is my plan. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Because this is a very, very encouraging text. It's not just eschatology, it's encouraging. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then in two weeks following, Lord willing, lesson number six, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, I'll be executing those passages in their context. Their, fun, their fundamental importance to Christian eschatology is pretty obvious, right? Depending on how you interpret those texts, you're gonna, that's going to be your eschatology to a great extent. But you need to know my approach to those, those texts is being governed by certain theological assumptions, uh, a certain perspective that I want to bring out into the open today. I need to be honest. Just here's, lay my cards on the table. You first need to understand my thinking on two terms, rapture and tribulation. Before we jump into the deep end, any questions so far? Okay. The first thing we need to understand, and you can see this in the top of your handout, is that the word rapture, you're going to want to follow along your handout by today, by the way, your PDF, is that the word rapture is not really a New Testament word. The English word comes from the Latin verb rapio, seize or carry away. We get rape from that in English which was used in the Vulgate. That, so that is the Latin translation of the Bible, not the Hebrew-Greek original, right? To translate the Greek word found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. I'll just read that. We just read it. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet called God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we, who are still alive and are left, 
will be caught up. We will be caught up is all one word in the Greek. It's the future passive first person plural, harpe gay sametha. So like a six-syllable beast of a word, harpe gay sametha. Uh, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, in popular circles, the rapture, in accordance with its verbal sense, is often thought of in terms of physical movement. Um, so you can see this in your handout, too. The popular, not biblical sense, in my opinion, of rapture. Christians are physically moved off the earth into heaven by the Lord. Number two, this physical taking away is also usually thought to be necessary to rescue believers from harm, the final tribulation. Neither of those things really gets, I think, to the heart of the matter. Certainly, physical movement is clearly implied in the First Thessalonians text. That's definitely there, the verbal sense of the word. Um, but the more important aspect of rapture in the New Testament is bodily transformation. Theologically, rapture is best seen as a parallel to resurrection. When the Lord returns, dead Christians are raised from the dead. Living Christians are raptured or changed you know, at the same time. This, is, this parallelism is clearly seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53. I'll just read the text to you, okay? I declare to you, brothers, this is the ESV obviously, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, not all of us will die before Jesus returns. But we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is the Christians who are alive at that time, will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. This change is necessary because the completed form of the kingdom of God will, that, that God will bring into existence uh, the return, at the return of Christ cannot be lived in by people with normal mortal bodies. Lesson number nine, Lord willing, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look all into this, okay? But you can't be living in the, in the new heavens and new earth with your mortal, perishable, corruptible body. It's like a whale living in the jungle of Vietnam. It's, just, it's not adapted to it, right? So all, all of us must be changed. Church Christians who have already died will be raised imperishable, but the rest of us, those who are still alive when Jesus returns, must also be changed, that is, raptured. That's the word. Second, the physical movement that is involved in the rapture is not a movement to escape something. That's totally incorrect. It's a movement to be joined to something. This is very clear from the First Thessalonians 4 text. Again, exegesis. Believers are caught up in order to what? Meet the Lord, right? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and then Christ will be raised first. After that, we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, brothers and sisters, there is one return of Jesus Christ as envisioned in the Bible, one coming which unites the coming king with all of his loyal subjects, both living and dead. And what's the result of this meeting our Lord in the clouds, in the air, as Jesus continues his journey down to earth? And so we will be with the Lord forever. That means rapture is not the means by which we are taken away from something on earth, so much as it's the means by which we're brought into the presence of Christ. 
Questions about that? We're going to look at a brief history of the secret rapture, but any questions on that? Okay, then, moving ahead. Uh, the, the doctrine of the secret rapture emerged during the early 19th century through the teachings of John Nelson Darby. Have you, have you ever heard of him? John Nelson Darby? He's kind of the, the founder of the Brethren. If you know any Brethren, he started the Brethren movement. Um, in this book here, this is an excellent book, by the way. It's called Exporting the Rapture uh, by Donald Harmon Atkinson. Actually, my first cousin is married to, is, is, this, is, this is her father-in-law. He works, he, he's a prop at Queen's. And uh, this is part two of sort of a trilogy he's doing. His next book is called, um, this is called Exporting the Rapture. The next book is called The Americanization of the Apocalypse. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But he has a very, I read this book. It's very good. He's not, he's not a, a believer, but he's an excellent historian. And, uh, and he, he posits this, that the most important people in present-day Protestantism, if you could look at it historically, would be Luther, Calvin. You could either make number one, number two, somewhere in there. Probably Wesley would be number three. Darby. Darby, good grief. And it's like, he makes a strong case for that. Millions and millions of people believe what Darby would teach, right? So Darby was one of the early leaders of the Plymouth Brethren movement, and his teachings became known as dispensationalism. I'm not going to do a lesson on dispensationalism. In a perfect world, I would do three or four. <laughs> it's too much. It's too complex. And as far as I know, no member of this church believes it. All right? So just maybe just give you the roughest of sketches. Darby's dispensationalism distinguished sharply between Israel and the church. He believed Israel was earthly and the church was heavenly. And he believed God had two distinct peoples and separate plans for each. Thus, Darby understood Old Testament prophecies as applying only to Israel. The earthly people of God. He would have a hard time being a member at New City. Because we look at those Old Testament prophecies that have them fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the, in the church, right? So he expected a literal fulfillment of God's promises to literal Israel. For example, the promise of the land in the Old Testament is interpreted to mean that God will one day fully restore Israel to Palestine. In contrast, non-dispensationalists typically see the land promise as intended by God to prophesy in shadowy Old Covenant form the greater reality that he would one day make the entire church, Jews and Gentiles, heirs to the new heavens and new earth. Right? So to think of Romans 4.13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, not just parcel of real estate in the Middle East, right? It's more than that. In many ways, it's accurate to say that classic dispensationalism believes in two peoples of God. Although both Jews and Gentiles are saved by Christ through faith, believing Israel, Darby would argue, Believing Israel will be the recipient of additional earthly promises, such as prosperity in the specific land of Palestine to be fully realized during the millennium. And those promises do not apply to believing Gentiles whose primary inheritance is heavenly. So when, so when according to dispensational thought, does God fulfill his prophecies to Israel? 
during the millennium. Read about that in Revelation 21 to 8, after Jesus' second coming. That's going to be lessons 7 and 8, the millennium. I'm not looking at it through dispensational eyes. I'm almost done with dispensationalism. I'm not going to keep going back to it, but we're going to look at the millennium in lessons 7 and 8. All right? Uh, So, in order for God to resume those earthly plans for Israel, Darby believed God would first need to remove the church from the world. Hence the need for the secret rapture. They had to be getting kind of gotten out of the way. They had now have their heavenly inheritance as now Israel, during the millennium, enjoys all those, those earthly promises in Palestine during the millennium. Darby had, in effect, proposed something new with this, though, a two-stage return of Jesus. He returns in two stages. Jesus would first come to rapture the church, and then again later, seven years later, in visible glory. Now, dispensationalism is an incredibly complex system of biblical interpretation, and that brief summary doesn't begin to do it justice. If you were dispensational, just heard that, you'd be very upset, because it's just, it skims the surface. And now we have revised dispensationalism, and we have progressive dispensationalism. This is, this is classic Darby dispensationalism I'm talking about here. But Darby's views spread rapidly, especially in the United States. The dispensational system, including the secret rapture, was disseminated by, through prophecy conferences and received support from even evangelists like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday. I'm actually related to D.L. Moody. Uh, But by far, the most important boost for Darby's teaching came from the Schofield Reference Bible. And again, remember remember part three to this is called The Americanization of the Apocalypse. It's about the Schofield Reference Bible. It's it's that important. Um, Very interesting word to the Americanization of the Apocalypse. Schofield's work became the... English standard for fundamentalist Bible-believing Christians in the early 20th century. You're fighting against the modernists, right? The resurrection didn't happen, all this kind of stuff. What's the Bible that you're going to have? The Schofield Reference Bible. That was the standard. And in process, it exposed thousands of readers to the secret rapture through his dispensational-informed study notes. Be very careful with study notes in a Bible. I, I promote certain Bibles, but you've got to be careful. They're not the Word of God. The secret rapture doctrine continued to gain steam in the latter half of the 20th century, and the advent of modern Israel in 1948 seemed a very clear sign that Jesus was restarting his plans for Israel. The rapture must be very close. Books like Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. You ever go to an old church that has a library, and they still have books from the 70s and 80s there? There's going to be 10 copies of that book. That sold like hotcakes. That was millions and millions and millions. I think it was like, I think it was 45 million. It sold. That's huge. It's huge. Um, Thief in the Night, movies like that. I, at youth group, I'm, I was born in 77, but we go to youth group and you watch A Thief in the Night. You know, it's, again, it's, it's dispensational. Anyone ever seen that movie? No? It's on YouTube. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch. <laughs> um, Left Behind novels, 80 million sold, right? That's captured the imagination of a new generation. Uh, the rise and spread of the secret rapture teaching is a remarkable story. In just a century and a half, a previously unknown doctrine has become a central eschatological hope for millions. So we're going to look at the tribulation now, but just questions on that. Finn? Um, I'm just wondering, maybe it's too complex. I know there's some, I think, dispensationalists who believe that Israel, and, like the Jews, will be saved even without Christ. Is that not classical? Is that in there somewhere, though? Uh, I want to come back to that at the millennium question, okay? Because I want to do it justice. 
right? It's, it's complex. And again, there's classical and then there's progressive dispensationalism, all that kind of stuff. You know, getting a temple going again, starting sacrifices. Why, are they, why would you be doing that? There's a, there's a rationale behind it, but I, I want to do it justice, Quinn, even though there's no dispensationalist here as far as I know. So, but that's the millennium one. We'll look at that, okay? Okay, tribulation. Now, if popular usage has shifted the theological idea of rapture away from the biblical perspective is even more the case with respect to tribulation. Even more so. New City, I believe, I'm kind of trying to proselytize you for this, this viewpoint, all right? I believe the scriptures predict a period of unparalleled distress for the people of God that will immediately precede the second advent, the coming of Christ. Christians call this the final tribulation. It, it, but it's very important to keep this future period of intense suffering in perspective. Because for many Christians, just that word, tribulation, is something confined to this period of future time. It's confined to the future, tribulation. Uh, but a quick look at the occurrence of this word in the New Testament shows us just how wrong this is. It couldn't be more wrong. Uh, the word tribulation, it's a slipsis in Greek, occurs 44 times in the New Testament. I would argue every single occurrence of the word refers to the suffering experienced by believers throughout this, this age of the church, just the last two, you know, between the two comings of Jesus Christ. 37 of those 44 occurrences, indisputably so. All sides agree with that. Dispensationalists too, that's fine. Uh, Paul and Barnabas warned the new converts in, South Asia, in Southern Asia Minor, we must go through many hardships, tribulations, same word, to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus neatly summarizes the basic New Testament perspective. In this world, you will have trouble. Same word, tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. So again, 37 out of the 44, no contest. Everyone agrees. It's indisputably so. It's not referring to like that, last, that last time. But what about the final tribulation? Well... All sides agree the word tribulation as it refers to a period of intense suffering at the end of history occurs at most in seven New Testament texts. Five of them are from the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13, Matthew 24, we looked at that last week. Two are in the book of Revelation. I would argue, again, not one of those texts, seven texts, in fact, refers to the final tribulation when Antichrist is attacking the church. But you, you saw last week even through the Olivet Discourse. Um, well, I'll just stop that for a second. But the point I'm trying to make here with this is that tribulation is one facet of a much larger and a very important... It's just one facet of a, very, of a, of a larger kind of Christian teaching on eschatology. Um, it's very important, but you're going to have a, a proper perspective on eschatology. Tribulation has to be involved in there to a very great extent. But it's not this culminating thing. Uh, when we focus on the culminating events of this age, it's all too easy to actually lose perspective by setting those events apart from this age as a whole, this whole inter-advental period that we talked about last week. We saw, again, we saw this danger in Luke 21. Jesus' description of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is confused by certain Christians with events that still occur in our future. Uh, an Ebola outbreak in Liberia famine in Ethiopia, a hurricane hitting the Carolinas. Some Christians invest those events with an eschatological significance portending in any second, any second now, return of Jesus Christ. Oh, this war happened here. This war, Jesus is going to return any second now. 
No, the New Testament proclaims that the prophecies about the last days have already been, are already being fulfilled. They've already started. Christ's death, his glorious resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, that all marks the inauguration of the last days. Um, a classic text, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, right? Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Let me explain why these people are speaking in tongues. You know, Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, etc., you know, the, you know the text, right? In the last days, that's actually, being, that's actually being fulfilled right now, occurring in that moment 2,000 years ago. He says the last days is what's going to happen. Uh, in Peter's mind, it's being fulfilled as he speaks, as Pentecost happens. That's very significant. It's a clue, actually, to help us determine its ultimate meaning. Um, I'm not going to get into all this right now. We looked at that destruction of the cosmos language. I'm actually look, looking at it again next week, Lord willing, in the sermon. So... Um, but the, it's the language of regime change, right? Um, a new day has dawned. There's a, there's a brand new world emerging here. Uh, taken as a whole, the incarnation, the wrath-absorbing death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, plus the pouring out of God's Spirit, is the launching of God's full and finer, final counteroffensive against all the sin and wickedness and death that entered the world when Adam fell. Pentecost shows us like nothing else that the kingdom of God is already here. It just hasn't been brought to its full and final completion. Um, again, you're going to hear it all the time at New City. Already, already here, not yet come. That tension, that eschatological tension. And by the time Peter's sermon is over, he's going to have told everyone that there's a new kingdom with a new king, with new citizens, bound to God in a new covenant, and the power of the new age, the long-promised Holy Spirit. The New Testament proclaims that the prophecies of the last days have already begun to be fulfilled. Um, Between the age between the advents of Christ belongs to the last things. The entire period is eschatological. The decisive foundational eschatological events have taken place, but to the surprise of many in Jesus' day, without culminating... Without the culminating judgment of the wicked and the definitive rescue of the righteous, that was, that was people were shocked by that. They were surprised. Where's, where's like the final form of the kingdom just coming in cataclysmic judgment and the blessing of to the righteous? It, it didn't happen. Already here, not yet come. It, that was a, that was a shock. Um, what's especially important? Why I'm saying all this? Why it's very important for our purposes here is we need to realize that the New Testament writers did not view their own history and their own experience as fundamentally separate from the events at the end of the age, of the end of the age. They saw it all as one big thing. So here's the mistake we need to avoid, New City. Christians often refer to the last days or the end times as something that is still future and reserve the language of eschatology for that future. If we do that, then we're going to separate those future events from our present experience in a way that's foreign to the New Testament. Many, many discussions of this topic make a fundamental error at precisely this point. Many Christians assume, without argument, that if a passage refers to eschatological events or to the last days, it must be speaking of the very end of history as we know it. That is not true. That is simply not the case. That's a huge mistake to make as your first step into this kind of discussion of eschatology. Don't do it. 
Don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that the end of the age will be exactly like our present time. You've, you've heard me argue some things, right? That too is an error that we want to avoid. There's a balance here. The New Testament clearly, I would argue, refers to an especially intense and worldwide time of suffering for God's people that will come at the end of history and to a climactic person of evil, the Antichrist, who will challenge God and persecute his people and to a climactic experience of God's wrath. But my point is that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament see these events not as belonging to a new period in salvation history, but as the climax to an era already begun. That's how to think of it. It's not a new era of history. It's the climax to an era already begun. It began 2,000 years ago. Questions about that? And again, I mean, there's a lot of information I'm conveying to you right now. I'm hoping, guys, that what this can do, if you had never really thought this through before, it could be like a snowball, right? Rolling down the hill, and there's just more and more snow being packed on over years, over decades even. And you don't have to believe everything I'm saying, but we're going to go look into exegesis, and you need to have some good rebuttals to that if you're not going to believe what I'm saying. But uh, just it's, it's a complex issue, but just, just absorb it. Just listen to it, pray about it. And then as you're coming across things in your devotions, go, ah, yeah, that fit in with John. Or that doesn't fit in at all with what John said. I think it's something totally different. That's great, but snow accumulating. The Old Testament concept of tribulation. This is the last thing we're going to look at. While tribulation, as we have seen, is the common lot of God's people in this age, an especially intense and universal time of tribulation is predicted for the very end of history in both the Old and New Testaments, I would argue. It's not a, I mean, that can be, I've talked to people where it's like, I don't want to believe that because that just sounds scary. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather not think that. It's easier to think that, you know, Jesus could come in the next five seconds because I don't want to actually think about a final tribulation. That sounds terrible. If you watch A Thief in the Night, that movie from the 70s, it'll be even more terrible. <laughs> they, go, they go whole hog with that. Um, uh, so it's the nature of the final tribulation I want to look at in the time we have remaining. Most Christians think that the final tribulation will involve both unprecedented worldwide persecution of God's people by anti-Christian forces, as well as the pouring out of God's wrath on an increasingly wicked world. New City, it's especially important to understand the place of God's wrath in this period. When we turn to the Old Testament, the situation is complicated by the fact that it's often difficult, now hear this, it's difficult to discern whether a particular description of tribulation relates to the Babylonian exile, the final judgment at the end of history, or the final tribulation. It's very hard to make distinctions between those three from Old Testament texts. Very difficult. The distinction between the latter two, the final judgment and the final tribulation, is not always recognized, but it's very important if we're going to be discussing these things. Passages that describe the horror of the end itself, the final judgment, judgment day, which in any sort of last time scenario, no matter what you believe about that, follows the final tribulation. Like that's the last thing in history, right? Those passages cannot be used as evidence for the nature of the final tribulation, which precedes the end. They're two different things. Does that make sense? They're two different things. And since many of the rele- re- relevant prophetic texts involve descriptions of the day of the Lord and do not indicate clearly, those texts don't indicate clearly whether the final tribulation or the end itself as in the final judgment is envisaged, the problem is very real. It's very complex. 
caution is called then in applying these Day of the Lord descriptions to the final tribulation. I gave you a whole list in your PDF of Day of the Lord texts. Be careful with that list. I presented it to you for a reason. You can look at the text and look them up. It's very hard to make distinctions. We're talking about the Babylonian exile. We're talking about Judgment Day. We're talking about the final tribulation. Very difficult. Oh, just because it says the Day of the Lord does not mean maybe what we think it means. Um, I mean, again, Joel 2, right? It was the Day of the Lord. Pentecost. That was 2,000 years ago. Be careful. If we keep this distinction in mind, we can conclude that Old Testament texts that might with some degree of probability be describing the final tribulation, not the exile, not the final judgment, are confined to the apocalyptic visions in the last, last half of the book of Daniel. Uh, that's a big thing to say. All right? Uh, it's certainly possible that other Old Testament passages may describe the final tribulation. Deuteronomy 4, 29, 30. Isaiah 26, 20 to 21. These are all listed in your handout. Jeremiah 30, 4 to 9. Joel 2, 30 to 31. And Zephaniah 1 and 2, to name a few. But none of these depictions of distress in these passages are clearly distinguished from the final outpouring of God's judgmental wrath after the tribulation. And that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, in the interests of, accurate, of accuracy, then, it's important to use the text in Daniel primarily in constructing the Old Testament concept of the final tribulation and employ other texts in the Old Testament only as they corroborate the picture in Daniel. Those chapters in the last half of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, undoubtedly have the greatest bearing of any Old Testament texts on New Testament eschatology. Unfortunately, they're also very, very difficult to interpret. Which is why I gave it the old college try a few years ago. I actually preached through Daniel. So those things are online. So it might be helpful, perhaps, if you're wondering about this or you want to pursue this further, to listen to those sermons from Daniel 7 to the end. I listened to Daniel 7 the other day, and it was one of those ones that we did in the park during the summertime. It's like, wow, that's random. You're hearing sirens and stuff going off. But anyway, so that's why I did the Daniel series first. You know, kind of get that under our belts. And then, but if you're looking for Old Testament final tribulation texts, it's those, it's that, those chapters in Daniel, undoubtedly. That's what it's referring to. The, Old, the New Testament picks it up big time. The other texts in the Old Testament could be final tribulation texts. Very hard to determine. But they have to corroborate Daniel, in my, in my estimation, in my judgment, okay? Okay, that's, that's that for today. Questions, though? Clarifications? Just thoughts in general? Not about, you know, the universe, but, you know, when? Yeah. Uh, sorry, to, to clarify, you said that many people make the mistake of thinking eschatology is in the future. It, or it's just, just the future. Just the future. Just the future, are, yeah. are you saying dispensations make that mistake, or do you might be... I guess the elite. Yeah, no, dispensations do, but I think, I think what we do too as well. Yeah, yeah. sorry, but I mean, do, do like all of them, or do some of them recognize, no, it's the whole time, we're just talking the future. Cla- classic Darby dispensationalists are looking towards the millennium, and they're kind of using it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, progressive dispensationalism and stuff is different. I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for classic Darby dispensationalism. Yeah. When you, when you talk to a lot of Christians about the last days, 
I mean, just even as we say it today, oh, in the last days, it'll be this and this. It's like, oh, you're talking about the future, right? Totally wrong. Last days, you see it from that Joel 2 text, starting at Pentecost. You know, that, that regime change that was happening with the, with the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, the pouring of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against that. It's actually these are the last days we're living in now. And they could go on from their 10,000 years. We don't know. Angela? Maybe, maybe you'll get into this in the next one, but I'm just curious, why does that author, what's his hypothesis for the Americanization of like the revolution and why dispensationalists, especially run rampant, it sounds like it's states probably I've, Well, the third book hasn't come out yet. Okay. It's coming out, I thought it was, it was supposed to come out this year. It was 180 bucks. Oh, I actually was going to buy it because it's being published by Oxford, right? So all these academic books are cost a fortune. But uh, then they delayed it. I just looked at it last week and they delayed it for another year. So I don't, that, that's with the Schofield Reference Bible. So what this is looking at is actually, is, is, there is, actually isn't a full-blown biography of, of, of Darby yet. It hasn't happened yet. This almost, he says, I'm not trying to do that, but he does a pretty good job of giving a, a biography of Darby. But just if, you, if you're interested in the Brethren movement, but also just how Darby synthesized a lot of stuff. Where I'll, I'll, To give you an example... I, I would give you, as, as a challenge, find theologians from, you know, from the Reformation on to, up before, to before Darby that actually talk about living in resurrected bodies in new heavens and new earth. Just try to find some texts. I've read all of Jonathan Edwards. He doesn't talk about it. He talks about heaven. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Darby corrected that. Now, he brought all kinds of Craziness, I think, on the side too, but I say I'm really thankful. There's a lot of, there's actually quite a bit of my eschatology where it's like, thank God for Darby. Actually, he could look, look at, like, Calvin doesn't actually talk about that. Luther doesn't talk about it. Something might get a mention maybe here or there, but he actually synthesized it in a really profound way. Was actually, you now he was wrong with the two, the two comings of Christ, obviously, but actually saying, we're going to be walking around in resurrected bodies on a recreated earth. Try to find Edward saying that. You, you won't find it. Um, that's, that's, I think, very important to understand. And that's something that's like kind of, it's not really argued today. But it, even a lot of Christians, though, too, it's like, I'm going to die and go to heaven. People aren't thinking about, I, I long for the resurrection to come, my resurrection. We're just content to live in heaven as disembodied spirits. Utterly, utter, an utter um, neutering of the gospel. Honestly, that's what it is. It's terrible. I'm thankful that God used Darby to actually correct that. Unfortunately, he brought in a whole bunch of other baggage with it, where it's like, I want to leave that way behind, right? So, um, I'm not sure if I answered your question or not there, but... But the Schofield Reference Bible book hasn't come out yet that he's done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But again, just, just I'm not ad-libbing here, but we've got some time to kill for this. Like, be very careful with study notes, right? Those aren't the inspired Word of God. Uh, but I, I recommend things like the ESV Study Bible. It's excellent. The, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible is an excellent resource. Schofield, his, he had all kinds of dispensational study notes, and it, it impacted millions and millions of people. That was the Bible for fundamentalists in the, in the, early, 20th, in the early 20th century. And, uh, and you're still seeing it today. Foreign policy. I mean, I mean foreign policy with Americans. Honestly, it's, a lot of it, if you're like of a certain perspective, when it comes to Israel, right? It's actually influenced by dispensationalism. Big time. It, it just is. It's recognized. Jews recognize that. 
the woman who's the leader of the, uh, the kids downstairs for Winchesky School, she's doing a documentary on dispensational thought in, in Israel today from Christians and foreign policy. That's actually her, I think her PhD thesis is on that. Yeah, which is very, so we have lots of good talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. One question, Jeff, but I don't know if you're going to probably uh, go into details in, in future classes. And it's the connection between Revelation 12 and Daniel chapter 12. Uh, I, and just a little background, you were, you know, we, you know, we became Christians in a Pentecostal church that believed in the secret rapture and the public rapture, the two, you know, the two. So there should be a reference between. Uh, the, you know, the, that, the woman that uh, bears a child, the child is taken uh, take, take away to heaven, and then yeah. the, the woman is taken to the wilderness for uh, 1,260 days. Yeah. And this is a reference to Daniel of chapter 12. Do you think that might lead some circles in Christianity, you know, to favor that uh, secret rapture? For, for sure, definitely. Yeah. Um, I actually wasn't planning on involving it in this. I do have a sermon. I preached actually a couple times. I did it at Christmas. That's actually a that's actually a birth narrative of the Messiah. Um, but I, I might I could maybe bring it in here. But actually, Armando, if you go to the the website and just look at that text that I preached it, you'll you'll get the definitive uh, answer, I suppose, to that. But I can see you can see why. I mean, again, that's using the three and a half years, forty two months, all that kind of stuff, right? Again, going back to Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes, persecuting the Jews, the Maccabean revolt against him. Sacrificing pigs on the altar, uh, you know, for Zeus, forbidding circumcision, forbidding keeping of Sabbath, forbid, like actually on pain of death, burning all, all the copies of, of, uh, of the Bible back in those days. The New Testament picks that up big time for final tribulation kind of talk. That's kind of the, but you're seeing it pictured in the Maccabean revolt. Daniel is the prophet that talks about that. You're not going to find the Maccabean revolt in Second Kings. It's going to be in Daniel, and he prophesies in great detail about that that very thing. And that that language, that concept, the whole idea gets picked up in Revelation, big time for sure. Uh, so, to answer your question, no, I can see why people would use Revelation 12 and actually apply that to a secret rapture. Um, I don't have time to get into it right now, but maybe in the future, maybe that's actually a good one to look at, Armando. Again, I'm, not, I'm just not sure how many people who are members of New City believe in a secret rapture. That's, so I want to make sure I'm spending my time on helpful stuff. Um, so I could, uh, we, we might look at it. It's possible. I'm not trying to deflect it. I'm just... Like, you know, dispensationalism is a big... Uh, that just, today was like dispensationalism, and then we get the millennium. I'll talk about it some more. That's going to be about it, though. Yeah. I'm not, sir. But I'm a pastor friend because of a red dragon in his nativity scene. But that, that's, that's a good thing, though, because actually that's what it's referring to. It's actually referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. And actually, the, the red dragons, they're ready to gobble up the Messiah. That's, that's what it's a picture of. Yeah. See, not that I believe that this is a secret yeah. I found it interesting that, you know, when Daniel goes into, into the final world, you know, asking, uh, you know, that uh, uh, men uh, that were in the living throne, when are these things going to happen? He mentioned the... the 1260, 1260 days. Mm. And after that, uh, he talks about the final resurrection. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the most explicit resurrection text in the Old Testament. It's Daniel 12. It's in, in, that, it's in that context. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, guys. So, again, fire hose day today. But that's the way it is. Then next week, Lord willing, it's exegesis 
of the Thessalonian text of the, of the rapture text of Jesus returning and we will be with him in the, in the clouds, right? So um, then we're not dealing with theological systems. We're actually dealing with exegesis of texts and that's where you want to start. You know? So anyway, have a good day. <laughs> <laughs>